I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. The world of corporate finance doesn't usually conjure up images of a human rights activist approach, and my guest today is a trailblazer who certainly doesn't fit into any box. She is a former skydiver with a love of Leonard Cohen, a woman who has combined the high-flying world of high finance with global humanitarian work, and frankly has had a profound impact on the lives of hundreds of thousands of people in poverty around the world. She founded the Adara Group, which includes two parts, a development arm which helps women and children in extreme poverty in some of the most remote places in the world, and the arm that funds that work through providing services to the corporate and financial world. Odette XL, thank you for joining us. Fantastic to be with you, Julia. I think you are one of our most influential Australians and everybody should have heard of you and hopefully this podcast can make a contribution to that. But can you tell me about the way you run your business and its funding of humanitarian work? So you basically work to earn money to do good things for other people. Is that right? That's right. And gee, what a lucky life that's been. I've had a joyous journey of a crazy winding journey of joy and tears building Adara out as a social entrepreneur. And it's given me a, a sense of purpose and the magnificence of human beings that's hard to put words around. So if I had to sum it up in a snapshot, as you said, we've got the Adara group, which was born 20 three years ago of this sort of crazy idea that I had is really now a fairly significant international non-government organisation. We specialise in a couple of very cool things. We're amongst the world's leaders in care to preterm and low birth weight babies in places without consistent electricity supply. And we are also amongst the world's remotest deliverers of, of education and healthcare services. So our most remote project, education project is 25 days walk from the nearest road. And so the INGO embedded in that is a couple of corporate advice businesses. They're the little engines that could, the money makers. And so we advise large listed companies in Australia on mergers and acquisitions, on raising capital, on all the things that listed companies have to think about. And those funds all all go to the work. So it's a bit of a weird mixture, but it's been a very joyous journey. And we've managed to put now $54 million to our work with people in poverty. I wish it was $540 million, but I'm pretty proud of what we've done so far. So we provide service to, this year it'll be about 170,000 amazing people living in remote places in extreme poverty. And we scale our work or amplify our impact through a big knowledge sharing pillar we run. So yeah, it's been a joyous, very lucky very weird journey. It's a fantastic model. 
if we imagine a world in which we could get on a plane and travel together, and I know for sure that's not the world we live oh, in, that'd be good. Just let's imagine that world for a second and we were off to see what the Adara group was doing, where would we be travelling to? Oh, well, first I'd take you and maybe one day we'll do this, Julie, because your work in education in particular is just outstanding. I'd love to show you our work. So first I'd take you to Nepal and we'd have to get on our hiking boots. We work across Nepal in Kathmandu as well as in a couple of very remote areas, the most remote of which is a place right up on the Nepali-Tibetan border called Humla. So we'd fly to the Indian border, then up right up into the high Himalayas and then we'd walk and walk and walk and you would meet amazing people doing incredible work, including the team that we've got up there, but communities who are extraordinary in these very remote areas. Then after we, we got down out of the mountains and we drank a whole lot of <laughs> yak butter tea and eaten a whole lot of dalbat, I'd fly you across the world to Uganda, which is where we've got our centres of excellence for maternal newborn child health. And I'd take you right out in a jeep to the remote centre of Uganda where the deepest centre of excellence is. That work is really in scale now throughout the country. At both ends, whether it was on the equator in hot Uganda or if it was in the mountains in the snow, I know you'd love the people. And I can't wait till we can get on that plane and see them. <laughs> yeah, it uh, pays to dream, doesn't it? So yes. we can dream about that. What made you pick those two locations? I mean, poverty, unfortunately, is in many, many places around the world. Why those two? Oh, you're so right. And, you know, the truth is, of course, that agonising thing that you could move to another country and start all over again, which is why for us it's about the, the excellence in service delivery, deep service delivery, and then the sharing. So it touches people in many more countries than the places where the work manifests. I picked them because I had a real bee in my bonnet about the plight of people who live remotely in the developing world. You know, it's tough, very tough, as you know, to be in poverty anywhere, but an urban poverty is terrible. But gee, remote poverty is even worse because in countries without tax bases, there's no government service, there are no NGOs because it's too hard to get there and there's a whole bang for the buck argument. So for me, the remote work was driven by just a fury about the human rights of people in those areas. And I also very much wanted to work in the poorest places I could find. You know, it was a bit of a go big or go home strategy. Some of the poorest places in the world, as you undoubtedly know, are landlocked. So both Uganda and Nepal are landlocked. They have the, amongst the lowest quality of living indicators in the planet. And then on top of that, for me, there was a personal connection to both countries. So I had, like so many people, trekked in Nepal in my 20s, loved it, loved the people, loved the remoteness of it. So I wanted to go and have a really good look there and see if I could help. Uganda, weird story. Back in the day before Adara, I used to run one of the Bermuda publicly traded banks. And part of the lurk and perk of that job was I used to go to Davos to rub shoulders without <laughs> with all those extraordinary people. Crikey. Anyway, in a coffee shop in Davos many years ago, I sat down beside the first lady of Uganda. And it was one of those extraordinary things where we struck up a friendship. We began to talk. We became friends. This was, so, this was in the early 90s. So back in the days before the internet. And she and I wrote to each other for a number of years. We saw each other there for three years. And then one day, and I said to her the second time, one day I'm going to come and help you. I'm going to do something in your country. And she said, when you come, I will make sure you're safe. I will look after you. You know, you just come down. And I thought, crikey, if I want to work in Africa, you may as well go where you know the first lady, right? So I literally drove up in a Jeep to government house many years later and buzzed on the door and said, remember me. 
So that's why Uganda. Isn't it funny, the path that life takes you on? If only I could be touching more, but because we're creating centres of excellence, a lot of people from around the world are coming into our project sites and our centres of excellence They are, when they can. Now they're coming in virtually. And, then, and so we're touching life beyond those borders. But that's why those two glorious countries. Absolutely. And the sorts of services, can you just briefly describe what is different for people in Nepal, people in Uganda, because you're there? So let's start with the remote community development, the health and education and remote places. We're specialists in delivering very high quality service, education service, all driven by locals or brilliant locals in places where governments are unable or, or can't afford to go. So when I first started, or we first started doing that work with community, people told me you'll never be able to deliver high quality education in a remote location, which of course is an offensive thing to say from a human rights perspective. And so if you went to any of our, we're in 16 schools across Nepal, they're, they, and they're very, very deep in excellence. You'd find schools that are 55% plus girls. You'd find schools where the service delivery is of such high quality and the training is of such high quality that the biggest one and the oldest one just um, hit the ranks of one of the top five schools in the country by exam results. You'd find schools where people of all castes and class and religions are all mixed in together. You'd find schools where nutrition support is a key part of the work that's done, where there's residential care facilities for kids so that they don't have to walk hours a day and on and on and on. They're beautiful. If you flipped across the world and you wanted to look at the maternal newborn health work, you would find a 30-acre site, which is the central piece of the work, the centre of excellence that sort of spans out. It serves a population catchment area of more than a million people, 15% of whom are HIV positive. And in that beautiful site, you will find a maternity unit that has a 99.5% survival rate, beautiful maternity facilities, all staffed by trained locals. You'd find a neonatal intensive care ward, even though we're in a place where the electricity supply is not consistent. You'd find one of the only ways to blend air and oxygen for newborns without electricity uh, in the world that's under we're uh, passing through clinical trials at the moment you'd find care compassion and survival rates that are akin to some of the survival rates you see in Australia um, you'd also find a big training center and you know hundreds of amazing staff and the beauty of a community that's wrapped around this facility but that's the kind of thing you'd see if you came with me to to see the work it's glorious and in fact when I'm in Uganda it can be tough some of the work is intense there's a lot of life and death especially at the moment around community but one of the things I do every morning to start my day when I'm there is the first thing I do is go up to NICU and I just walk in there and know that every baby in that place that is alive every precious child would likely not be there before we came 23 years ago and that's a very nice feeling. That's a beautiful vision you've painted. Thank you. I want to talk to you now about the why question, and I think that's going to take us to your childhood. But many people who do things like provide advice to enormous companies that are doing mergers and acquisitions and make a lot of money out of that, many of them would be contemplating, uh, should I buy a yacht? Should I buy a plane? Should I buy a house on the harbour in Sydney? Those sorts of things. Clearly, you've taken a different approach. And it's true to say, isn't it, that all of the money you generate from your corporate work goes into this philanthropy. 
Why? Is that something in your childhood, something about growing up in New Zealand? You used the word fury before, uh, yes. in, the injustice and the exclusion of people. Where does that come from? Yes, I don't remember a time where, when I wasn't angry on behalf of the poor. Where does it come from? I mean, of course, I'm a lucky Kiwi. So it comes from growing up in a land, you know, at a time where the government paid me to go to university. I cleaned office buildings at night and the government gave me enough of a, a subsidy to go to university that I could afford to study. So I grew up in a beautiful country where, where health and education were taken for granted and where there was a sense of decency and equality. But I also grew up of two born of two amazing people. My dad, a journalist, my mum, a secretary. And I, I've often thought that he must have whispered in my ear when I was a little girl, you know, you can do anything. And, you know, it was such a strong message that he he gave all of us, but that he, you know, very strong with me, this sort of sense of you can get out there and do anything. And Mary, you know, my mother, in a different way, her message was just get out there and give it a go. The other thing I say that the two of them, when I think about them, really taught us, you know, I can remember him saying to me, over and over, you know, my children will respect the person who lives on the street in the same way that they respect the Queen. It was a really important message in our house. Everyone is deserving of respect. And, and so I think, you know, that those two cornerstones, gratitude and respect and just a global consciousness. I was a little girl, lucky to be born in New Zealand. If I'd been born anywhere else, my life would have been so different. So social justice activism, everything was just bred into me. I really believe that. I can't say that I expected it to exhibit <laughs> the way that it has. I didn't think I'd save the world one investment banker at a time. But without question, I stand on that wonderful foundation and those shoulders of love, permission to fail, and just a profound belief in the equality of human beings and the celebration of diversity. So I'm very lucky for all of that. And it sounds like that background included a celebration of gender equality, if you think your father was whispering in your ear that girls can do anything. Can you tell us about the first time that you thought to yourself, hmm, I'm getting treated differently here just because I'm a girl? Yeah, isn't that an interesting thing? It, I was actually probably almost in my late teens. I compared myself principally against little girls elsewhere rather than boys. You know, I was a pretty bolshy kid. It didn't really occur to me that there might be any suggestion that I could be less equal. I can remember when I was a, a teenager and I started to think, I, I actually became a mad skydiver, as you said, and skydived for many years. So I had a thing about flying. And I remember the, suddenly recognizing if I wanted to go and fly in the Air Force, I wouldn't be allowed in New Zealand. And, and I can remember considering that at about 14 or 15 and thinking, gee, God, in my own country. Not that I wanted necessarily <laughs> to go into the military, but I do love those planes. So I guess it probably started to dawn on me when I was a mid to late teenager. I've been a feminist activist my whole life, but that doesn't come from feeling secondary or recognizing that other people thought I might be secondary until quite late in my teens. And then, of course, once you do grow into adulthood and there you're out in the world and suddenly, boy, there it is right in your face, you know, and, and all of us, I think, have our own set of stories, some hilarious, some appalling about those moments when you realise, oh, gee, uh, you know, when I was a baby lawyer in the early days at Allen's, you know, being mistaken for the secretary, you know, just the put downs, the use of sexist language, the, just that sudden recognition, being hit on, worse, I think most of that for me came late teens, early 20s, when it really 
came home to me, gee, even with all the privilege I carry, somehow people think the world is telling me and telling others that I may be ancillary. That's an interesting thing to digest, isn't it, as you become a woman. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Let's chart your remarkable journey to what you're doing now because the sense I've had looking at your life story is that you always knew that you wanted to make a difference in the world and be involved in very impactful global humanitarian work and yet the route you took to get there is through the corporate world. So it seems just counterintuitive that a young feminist activist would say to herself, I know how to change the world. I'm going to go into corporate <laughs> services. I know. Uh, I know. So, so you can, can you talk us through that? You came out of school. What made you pick your university course and then the jobs that beckoned beyond then? Absolutely. I was sure that I was going to be a human rights activist. So, and everybody who knew me was, came out of school, went to Victoria University, Wellington, great left-wing activist university, very involved in the anti-apartheid movement, very involved in the anti-tour movement. When the Springboks came to New Zealand, feminist movement, peace movement, spent a lot of time being you know, hauled off the streets by the police with placards. I studied law because I wanted to be an officer of the court. And I profoundly believed that I needed to understand structure if I was going to make social change. But it was all about human rights. Came to Australia to jump in the Australian National Parachuting Championships and broke my knee. And so found myself hobbling into Melbourne University, which for those of you listeners who don't know, is a very blue blood university, quite different to where I'd been. And there, all the university kids, they drove to school in their own cars. I was cleaning office buildings. (laughs) I'd already had three years of that to pay my way through university. So very shocking moment of meeting the other side, if you like. And I had this really big moment weird in a cafe talking to some random guy one of those conversations you have where I said to him why did you study law and he said to me why did I study law because the top QC in Melbourne makes you know whatever it was six thousand dollars a day anyway it was like a lightning bolt hit me and I thought oh my god imagine studying law for that reason for money you know it was just so shocking and then I had a second lightning bolt and I thought oh my God, I don't understand that. I don't understand those people. I don't understand that power structure. I do not understand power and money. And I was cleaning the house of a partner of a major law firm. And that, so that night there I am cleaning this guy's house and he comes home and I said to him, what's the most right-wing law firm in Australia? And he said to me, I beg your pardon. And I said, I mean, what's the most business-friendly law firm? And he gave me that gift that so many men have given all of us. He said to me, oh, it's a firm in uh, Sydney. It's called Allen, Allen and Hemsley, but uh, you would never get in there. That's where I went. So when I, <laughs> I decided, right, go to the heart, the dark heart of the capitalist empire. So that's where it all began. I decided there was nothing about money and power that interested me except that I didn't understand it. And I thought, I need to understand that if I want to affect change. 
So I went in like a spy in the enemy camp. And then, of course, you get into those places, you have that experience and you realize you step out of your tribe. Oh, my God, I've been so prejudiced. I got in there, you know, my feminist activist tribe disowned me as soon as I put on makeup and high heels and told me that I was selling out. But I got in there and realized there's people with brains in here and there's some of them have values and holy cow, some of this is really interesting. And it forced me to re-examine the thinking that I'd had about standing on one side, kind of the virtuous side, and and there were the bad guys, you know, the capitalist pig dog bastards on the other side. And it it forced me to re-examine that. And so there began a journey, amazing journey of learning. I ended up as the CEO of this publicly traded bank in Bermuda and I actually signed the $5 note in Bermuda. I signed the Queen's Neck and my, my left-wing activist family still have that framed and on the wall of the house as the point of total departure where I began. But, but all the, the point really all the way for me was learning. Figuring out that if we, I believe, I would think there's a million ways to affect social change and you in particular are a great icon globally of how you've done that. But for me, I realized I can sit in engagement. I can learn this stuff and I can use it to turn the dial. And, you know, I'm a Kiwi girl without money and I've managed to generate with amazing teams standing with me $54 million for the poor and hopefully inspired many others to do similar things or like things. And that's because I'm sitting in the middle trying to figure out how to get these two sides, trying to be heard. So it has been a weird journey, but I do find it really funny that people think I'm a businesswoman who decided to give back because, and all those people who really know me laugh hysterically about that. I'm the furthest thing away from a businesswoman who tried to give back than you've ever met. The journey took you from law and you obviously learned about the financial system. Ultimately, you went into banking and learn from doing that into financial services leading to what you do today. Can you give us a sense of how gendered those environments were when you were on your way up? Very. Oh boy, are they gendered those places. And, um, you know, being a young woman in the 80s in a major law firm, Reiki Mikey, that was something else. And um, I remember um, doing this deal when I was at Linklater. So I went to Hong Kong and um, I was put on this deal acting for the banks to, it was a financing for an Asian country that were clearly doing business with the Americans. It was a security nuclear wrapped up as, as a, an energy deal. But anyway, it was offensive in every way. So here I was acting on this multi, multiple hundreds of millions of dollars worth of deal. And I was invited, of course, I was the girl who acted for the banks. I, I get invited to the close dinner and I was the only woman so I go to the closing dinner and all this fleet of of dignitaries from this particularly complex Asian country fly in and here we are at the closing dinner and I'm at the top table because I acted for the banks on this huge deal and the uh, the guy who is the top dignitary stands up and he begins by saying I just like to begin by saying how nice it is to have a pretty girl at the table with us and I remember thinking oh my god how did I get here it was hilarious I, I wanted a belly laugh you know, from funny to appalling to shocking, the stories at every step, I mean, all of us can tell them. I have to say, though, my journey as a woman is so much luckier than the journeys of women of colour, than the journeys of women in the developing world, than the journeys of so many others. So, you know, rather than highlight the complexity and the obstacles, you know, I, I would rather highlight the fact that I've been able to, you know, do something with all that. But yeah, there have been moments, that's for sure. As for all of us, I was asked on a stage not too long ago, you know, have you ever been discriminated against? And I just started to laugh and I said, oh my God, of course I have. I'm a woman. 
<laughs> that's right. That's right. What, are you, what planet are you living on? <laughs> you know? So, um, I mean, I guess also, you know, when they bury me, I think they'll write on my gravestone, oh, my God, she was tenacious. Like, if I think about it, the things that have, have spurred me on have been all those moments for all those cast of characters that behaved badly, that disrespected me, that made me feel unsafe or uncomfortable, that told me that I wasn't going to succeed, you know, every single one of them, you know, right from the guy who told me I'd never get into Allen's, have spurred me on to much greater things. So nowadays I see them as a bit of a gift when they appear in my life. Um, <laughs> That's kind of a superpower, I think, to use the, uh, <laughs> use the slights and indignities that come with sexism as a bit of rocket fuel for the next bit. <laughs> And then, you know, you obviously went from high-level job to high-level job, learning as you went every step of the way. When you decided to step out of that and to create the Adara group, so the money-making side and the humanitarian side, what were the reactions of people around you, the sort of people that you'd been working with? Was there a kind of, are you mad? You know, we've got some of the best, most remunerated jobs on the planet. Why would you do that? Yeah, it was funny, actually. I mean, isn't it? it's funny looking back on it. So there was the group that were, oh, my God, you can't be serious. It must be money laundering, drug dealing, or you're just a complete bullshitter. There was that crowd. There was the, what the hell are you doing or debt? You know, is it a charity? Is it a corporate advice business? Is it a tax structure? There was a lot of that. There was concern. Oh, my God, she's crazy. I don't know. When I look back on it now, I think I was crazy. Thank God when you're an entrepreneur, you just, you don't quite know what's ahead of you, right? 23 years ago, people weren't setting up investment banking businesses to serve the poor or NGOs with investment banking businesses embedded in them. The wonderful thing in that journey, isn't it weird to have gone through nearly a quarter of a century, I can't believe I'm that old, but is now to find myself almost mainstream. So nowadays, people are less surprised. You know, the concept that business has a, has an obligation to behave well in the world, that it has multiple stakeholders, you know, the community, its staff, the environment, its shareholders, its consumer, that's really in this mainstream now. Whereas Adara in the early days, we were really so out of left field that we were a construct, I think, that people couldn't really wrap their heads around. So, yeah, there was a lot of amusing comments about it. But, you know, it, that thing, that's something I say to lots of young women. You're going to hear the voice of no all your life. You're going to hear it from people who love you and are worried about you and you're going to hear it from people who feel threatened or you're reflecting to them what the, their own sense of insecurity. So the, the way to deal with it, in my view, is you listen to any anybody that you respect and you consider their views but basically you just get on with it so there was a lot of voices of no but I just got on with it and can't quite believe we got to where we are today it's a fantastic achievement now can I ask you how do you manage that question of money for yourself a woman's got to eat <laughs> you're right we do well and you know, I know that the people listening to this podcast can't see me I've never been a, a big spender on fashion or anything you know, people are like for god's sake or dear brush your hair and put on some decent shoes I'm fine I'm totally fine so I I have made money I'm a volunteer to Adara and um, so my work with Adara is, is all as a volunteer. But I've made my money by sitting on the boards of large companies. So I sat on the board of a big Aussie ins insurance company, which I loved, called Suncorp. And I'm just about to go on the board of a big Aussie bank called Westpac. And so I'll be paid board fees for that. And that's plenty of money. Who could want more than that? 
so I'm fine. And, um, you know, there's never been a day in my life where I haven't had enough to eat, where I haven't been able to go where I wanted. And yes, financial security for women matters, and I don't want to undermine that, but I think it's all about how much is enough, right? And, and I make good money and I'm totally okay, so I'm fine. Imagine buying yachts. I don't get it. It's okay if that's other people's things, but um, I'd rather save life. That just lifts you beyond belief. The joy that you get out of that is just, I can't describe it to people. I always say, if you just go give to somebody, you know, of yourself in some way, because boy, will you have a, a better life once you do that. So I feel like I'm the wealthiest woman that you've ever met, quite honestly, because of that. There wouldn't be too many volunteer CEOs on the planet. So you basically <laughs> lead the Adara financial services side, the business side and the humanitarian side, all for zero money. Yes, I do. Because why would I want to take away from what's coming in that's, that's there to serve the poor? Adara gives me plenty. It, it enriches me in different ways. But yeah, I'm, I'm, um, I've never been in that game to, to take money out of it for myself. And in fact, there's the second business that I set up, which I want to is a model of how you run corporate advice businesses. And I've got all these really big wheel investment bankers working with me. So I set it up as a model because I want to bring it into Wall Street and I want to bring it to London and other markets. I actually put that business into trust. And it's owned by the international not-for-profits so that if I had a personality bypass, I can never get my hands on the money because I want to show, you know, how you create and build structures with integrity and to show people so that I can replicate it. I do, of course, believe that anyone who works for not-for-profits should be paid properly. I very much believe that. And we do everything we can to make sure our staff are properly all around the world are properly paid. But for me personally, I don't need to make my money from Adara. I can make it from sitting on a great board and that allows as much money as possible to flow through to what I really care about. It's such a remarkable story, but there are a few remarkable sidelines as well and I can't resist asking you <laughs> about them. Why skydiving? <laughs> flinging, flinging yourself out of a plane? Oh, you Earth? clearly never tried it. Oh, my God, it's just divine. It's the most wonderful thing. I'm so glad I was a jumper. And yeah, I did nearly a 1,000 parachute jumps. Um, which in the world of skydiving, any skydiver who listens to this will go, oh, so what, a thousand jumps only just makes the grade. But I did live and breathe it for about 15 years. There's nothing quite like the feeling of being in the air, you know, going out the door of a beautiful plane with some amazing people, the way that the world looks, the fun of it, the freedom. If you could take the fear away, can you imagine how much fun it is to fly a body and then fly under a canopy? It's glorious. So I'm so glad I, I jumped for so long. It taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about risk-taking. It taught me a lot about counterculture. It's a real counterculture. And I made some great friends there. I think I'm past my great skydiving days now. I do occasionally look at the clouds and think maybe I could go with some of my mates who are still jumping and knock out a few more. But I think my mother would probably kill me if I did that, to tell you the truth. But gee, I'm glad I did it. That's uh, fantastic. Now I need to ask as well, why Leonard Cohen? Okay, so here's my great tip for you tonight. Leonard Cohen, Live in London. That's the best album to listen to to get a sense of who he is or was. He was a great poet as well as a great musician. So there's something in his music really resonates. His use of language is brilliant. His use of music is brilliant. But there's a, there's probably more darkness in his music than people associate with me. But there's also kind of a light in it. And so I'll give you an example, if you can bear with me on my Leonard Cohen worship, the anthem. Well, yeah, there's so many great songs. But um, the chorus starts, ring the bell that still can ring. 
forget your perfect offering. There's a crack. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And for me, you know, that sort of sums up how I think about life. You know, you can get absolute go down the gurgler with despair if you look at all the darkness. But actually, there's always a crack, right? There's always somewhere where the light gets in. That's where I try to focus my life. And and if I think about what's going on now, Afghanistan and all that horror, Haiti, COVID, you know, inequality, God, it goes on and on and on in terms of what we've got to deal with. But I'm always, I, I just... I've spent my life looking for greatness and, and celebrating the greatness and magnificence of people. And Leonard Cohen kind of catches that for me. Well, I'm telling you, listen to that album. It, you'll love it. I think the only appropriate response would be hallelujah, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Is that the one you thought I was going to quote to you? Hallelujah. Yeah. Also beautiful. <laughs> let, let me take you now to the uh, questions that I always ask towards the end of the podcast. I always put a fact to my guests. Unfortunately, this is not a happy fact. Global extreme poverty rose in 2020 for the first time in over 20 years and the pandemic will push 47 million more women and girls below the poverty line, reversing decades of progress to eradicate extreme poverty. Does that chime with what you're seeing out there through your oh, work? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It's horrifying. So we've seen a, a huge rise in teen pregnancies on our project site as girls are selling sex, swapping sex for food. We're seeing girls out of education going into child marriage. You know, the statistics on girls and if they're out of school, as you know better than I, the speed at which child marriage and child trafficking starts. We are seeing incredible rise in inequity and poverty. We're doing a lot of work in nutrition support, we're seeing more child trafficking than we've seen, for instance, in Nepal since the end of the Nepali Civil War. Actually, since the earthquake in 2015, I'm afraid it, it resonates completely. It's a horrifying time in the, in the low and middle income countries and we need to pay attention to it. Um, and, you know, you started saying, you know, nobody knows who you are in Australia. And, <laughs> and actually, I really like that. But what I do want people to know is I want them to hear the message that this is not okay, that, you know, we are a global world, that we have to stand together to support our neighbours in faraway places because what is happening, I think, you know, represents one of the greatest moral issues of, of our lifetimes. Mm. Well, uh, that message has to be heard loud and clear. Mm. What's the worst misogyny you've had to deal with? I mean, like many women, I've, I've been assaulted. I've been, been in situations that have been dangerous. Actually, I will give you this one. When I was a lawyer in Hong Kong, Linklater's had a client. I was the lawyer on the client. The client actually was an Australian, big Australian organisation. And the, the guy who was acting for the client, it became clear to me very quickly that he expected that I would provide sexual favour for him because he was a client. And he came to Hong Kong where I was working. And if it wasn't actually for a friend of mine, I think I probably would have been raped by this guy on the first night that I was out. It was a very, very frightening experience. I was very afraid of him because he was a very, very large client. Even though I was a strong woman and a feminist activist, he brought a power, a malevolence and a power that was really quite something. There was no romance in any of it. There was no hiding. It was just, you know, this is what you are going to do for me. It was a very, very tough experience. But uh, here's the good part of that story. After I went through this terrible, terrible evening, I went into the office the next day beside myself and went to the senior partner of um, Linklater's and just told him exactly what had happened. And um, 
I was beside myself. It was such a bad experience. Um, I characterize this as misogynistic behavior because just the fact that I was a woman, there was no issue about consent or romance. It was just that I was I was there to serve him. And the senior partner of Linklater's, when I poured my heart out, I was just telling him what an awful experience. He sent me home and he sacked the client. It was a huge client for Linklater's. That was an amazing experience. Actually, I talked to him about that not too long ago. I'll always be grateful to him for his absolutely unceasing support of me during that time. But yeah, I, you know, there's been misogyny, unfortunately, it's a fact of life, right? Don't we need to change that? And, and and aren't we all changing it, you know, one little bit at a time? But that's probably, the, if I had to highlight one, that'd be one that I would probably highlight. Thank you for sharing that story and uh, at least the conclusion of it, the right conclusion. If you had all of the power in the world, what would you change for women? If you could change one thing, so you only had the power for a moment, what would it be? I think what it would be is, you know, little girls would be seen and celebrated for the wonder that they bring to the world and they would be treated as equal to every little boy because it all starts there, right? And I will not stop fighting for the rights of women and girls until that day comes, until the day comes where every little girl has exactly the same rights and opportunities as every little boy. Virginia Woolf says, I will not be famous great. I will go on adventuring, changing, opening my mind and my eyes, refusing to be stamped and stereotyped. The thing is to free oneself, to let it find its dimensions, not be impeded. Audette says, nothing as profound as Virginia Woolf. Audette says, girls can do anything. (laughs) And what a beautiful note to end on. Thank you for a fantastic conversation. Uh, Thanks for everything you've done for women and girls and the world. Julia, it's been a delight to talk to you. A podcast of one's own is a production of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. The Institute works towards a world in which women of all backgrounds have fair and equal access to leadership. If you liked what you've been listening to, please tell your friends. We'd love it if you could also rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider to ensure more people can find out about us. If you have feedback or ideas of who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at giwl at kcl.ac.uk. This podcast has been produced by Connie Blafari and edited by Nick Hilton. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, visit our website at giwl.kcl.ac.uk and sign up to our updates. Thanks for listening and join us next time. Oh,